0: the New Money Review podcast, the future of money in 30 minutes. I'm Paul Amory, the editor of New Money Review. You are not alone if you now cringe when you hear the word blockchain. Although it's a term that's less than a decade old, by now it's been so overused that it threatens to lose all meaning. And yet it's one of the questions I'm most frequently asked as a journalist. People ask me not just what is a blockchain, But what distinguishes one cryptocurrency from another? Both of them run on blockchains. And what is there in common between two concepts that seem diametrically opposed? What do I mean by that? Well, first, let's take an open access network like Bitcoin, which anyone can join, and which was set up by a group of computer hackers and anarchists. Bitcoin was designed to be censorship resistant, and resistant in particular to interference by governments and by banks. And then contrast that with a closed network, that allows a group of banks to share transaction data for their own business purposes. Yet, both of these are labelled as blockchains. Fortunately, there are independent analysts out there looking to cut through the blockchain hype and to arrive at a consistent research framework and terminology. I'm delighted to be joined by one of them, Michelle Rauchs, who is an academic at Cambridge University. Michelle is head of the Cryptocurrency and Blockchain Research Programme At the Cambridge Centre for Alternative Finance. The centre's research focus is financial channels and instruments that emerge outside of the traditional financial system. So for example, cryptocurrencies and blockchains. Michelle, what are the main challenges in arriving at a standardized terminology for cryptocurrencies, blockchains, and another term for blockchains, distributed ledger systems?
1: Well, that's a good question, uh, because we're still very far away from uh, having a standardized terminology. Um, Now, there there have been lots of attempts, but unfortunately, nobody or none has been able to clearly um, establish itself so far. Um, And the problem is, it seems actually getting worse, because the more media and press attention this topic actually attracts, um, the more these terms are essentially getting conflated with each other and actually cause even more confusion. Um, So, yeah, it's a big issue.
0: What would you say are the main areas of misunderstanding uh, as things stand?
1: So I would say the main um, area of misunderstanding is is really the discrepancy between the actual capabilities of the systems um, and then their inherent limitations. So people tend to overestimate what blockchains or DLT systems can actually do. um, And they think they can have all the benefits without any of the downsides. So let's say, uh, let's get Bitcoin censorship resistance but just make it also scalable to billions of users and actually have block times of a second. But the problem is there's a lot of hidden trade-offs in many of those systems that are not uh, revealed or openly talked about. And that causes a lot of confusion um, and essentially leads to really unrealistic expectations as to what these um, systems can actually deliver.
0: Let's rewind a few months to the end of 2017. There was a period of, I suppose, peak mania when uh, many companies were advertising their potential use of blockchain or putting even blockchain in their company name and seeing a spike in their share price. Now that that mania has arguably died down quite a bit uh, in 2018 but um you know has has the the bear market in cryptocurrencies helped I mean you said that, that you think things are getting worse but are, you know is is the the removal of the froth uh, helping in some way?
1: Well let me say that bear markets are always, um, at least for developers and people that really want to educate themselves, the best period, um, just because all that noise that comes in with price surges and so on, that noise is actually gone. The people have more time to focus on, sub, uh, on the substance, essentially. Um, now, I really like to separate um, cryptocurrencies and the public blockchains or public distributed ledgers, whatever you want to call them. On the one hand and then on the other hand a completely different type of systems which are these enterprise blockchains also often referred to as DLT systems um because i think these are really two completely different beasts um they work on completely different uh, promises and so really completing those two is essentially what creates a lot of confusion as well and so the thing is as you mentioned before is that often when cryptocurrency prices are just skyrocketing then there's like the pendulum of attention swings to these public blockchains and everybody is just talking or going crazy about crypto assets. But when we we're in the bear market as now, then the pendulum swings back and now everybody's talking again about these enterprise blockchains because they don't have crypto assets. So they are not as um, how can I say as dependent on, on some kind of like external price mechanism.
0: Could you, could you recap for our listeners um, the, the history of the last few years? Because there, there have been, seem to have been several stages in the evolution of interest in, in both cryptocurrencies and, and blockchains. And what do you see as the most uh, significant uh, phases that we've already been through in this uh, relatively short history?
1: Um, well, Bitcoin launched, or the Bitcoin network to be precise, launched um, in on January 2009. And then really during two years, um, it was really just reserved for a small um, niche of, of geeks, essentially developers and cryptographers and some libertarians as well. Um, then in 2011, that was really the, the start of that altcoin phase, as we like to call it. Um, so where you had a lot of copycats, so cryptocurrencies that essentially just copy-paste the Bitcoin source code, uh, change a few parameters, um, often the block time or the total supply, and then essentially launch their own cryptocurrency. Um, And then there's, uh, I would say, a third period, and that's really starting from 2014-15, where we see the emergence of um, the so-called decentralized platforms, mainly starting with Ethereum, but where the focus really shifted from launching your own public infrastructure, so your own public blockchain, we uh, really the focus has now switched to trying at least to deploy your own uh, application on top of an already existing platform um, now for p- private permission blockchains um, around 2012 more or less um, the idea came around that a lot of financial institutions were actually looking at this and thought oh well this is quite interesting but we don't really like that unregulated token um, meaning bitcoin and on the other hand we also don't like having a public infrastructure which is primarily maintained by some pseudonymous miners um, somewhere in China. So why don't we just get rid of the that unregulated token and these, uh, that bunch of miners and actually just close the system instead? Um, so limited, we need to set of restricted, uh, vetted participants. And the idea behind that was that you can actually all the benefits um, and get kind of rid of the insights. And then we're again back to trade us because you cannot have the same properties. Uh, without also essentially, um, okay. Without essentially also just having the downsides of um, these public systems.
0: Where do you see the main trade offs? And if you're someone who's looking at this area of the, say, the monetary system for the first time, what should people be particularly aware of?
1: Well, there's so many trade-offs. I can't possibly just enumerate them all, but I guess yeah. the main one is really trying to optimize um, scalability and and also performance in the sense of like um, how how many transactions you can do a second or in, in total uh, per day. Um, so essentially, we really need the capacity. And the problem is when you try to optimize for that performance, it generally always comes at the expense of what we call trust minimization. Or, what some people refer to as decentralization. Um, and so, to understand that, I think it's worth getting going back to the beginning and really trying to ask um, so, what are these systems essentially designed to solve? And so, in the case of Bitcoin, it was very clear it was to have two things. The first one was create an unseizable, scarce digital commodity, which is not controlled by an institution or certain individual or a company. Um, and on the other hand, also to have an embedded or integrated um, censorship-resistant value transfer system, so where you can um, send that digital commodity or asset um, across the world, across borders, at let's say relatively low cost, um, without anyone being able to censor that transaction. And in order to gain that, what we call censorship resistance, um, the system has to be sufficiently decentralized. So to avoid having a single institution or party. Um, to gain sufficient control to essentially dictate or impose their will on the system. And decentralization, unfortunately, is no free lunch. So it comes at a very high cost. And that brings us to lots of questions. So the thing is, it's not necessarily bad if you, how can I say, cut down a little bit on decentralization. So make your system a little bit more centralized in certain aspects if it can actually gain valuable performance improvements. Um, as results. It just depends really on the objective. So what does your system um, intend to do? What is the objective of your system? And that should essentially drive system requirements and also then the acceptable trade-offs that you can choose.
0: Many critics of Bitcoin argue that its uh, intensive usage of energy is is a a serious downside of this uh, new form of money. Uh, At the same time, proponents of Bitcoin say that this is actually a key feature of the network, that you have to spend the computing power to provide that censorship resistance. Where do you stand on those questions?
1: Well, I think so far, proof of work. um, So the method that Bitcoin and a lot of other cryptocurrencies um, use to essentially decide on what different versions of conflicting transactions are the valid ones or the correct ones. So proof of work so far has been proven to, well, work, essentially, and so far we need to be the only one to work. Um, So I know a lot of people would now say, no, we have already proof of stake since 2000, what was it, twelve I think, with PeerCoin. Uh, We have delegated proof of stake and all these different variants. But the thing is, there's no really pure proof of stake system that actually operates today. It's either a combination of proof of work and proof of stake or delegated proof of stake, which is something completely different. And of course, those have completely different trade-offs. So, For example, one of the main advantages of proof of work really is that if you join the network and then you leave the network um, and you rejoin at some later point in time, and there are different versions probably of the ledger. So which one is the correct one? Um, You don't have to trust anyone or to, to essentially listen to anyone. You just have to choose the version of the ledger that has the most cumulative proof of work. So that was the most expensive to produce. And that is that objective yardstick. So everybody will just follow that, the so-called longest chain. Now in proof of stake, when you get back after your period of absence, and there are different versions, there's no objective yardstick. All uh, different chains, chain versions, let's say, look the same to you, and or at least from a valid validity point of view. And so now you have to, to have off-chain processes to coordinate on which one is supposed to be the true one, quote, unquote. Um, so that's just one thing about proof of work. Another one is, and that is very interesting uh, if you think about creating a, an artificially sparse commodity, is that it actually costs a lot to produce new coins or to mint new coins. And that is meant to simulate the costs of, uh, or the difficulty of essentially mining gold. And that is also one of the reasons why Bitcoin is often called digital gold.
0: In your benchmarking studies on cryptocurrencies and on, on blockchain, you've used a particular analytical framework, which involves looking at the what you call the protocol layer, separately from the network layer, and then thirdly, a data layer. Why did you arrive at this uh, analytical framework? And and what benefits does it give you?
1: So the idea was really to develop a framework um, to break down a given what we call DLT systems. So we purposely want to keep it very broad. to essentially help people compare different systems and also analyze them in the sense that you understand how these different aspects or components work with each other and interact with each other and what the resulting uh, properties of the system are. So, um, we wanted to have a, a simple three layer model. Um, so as you mentioned, the protocol layer, which is the base layer, um, and that is essentially the rule, the rule set of the system. So, um, what are the main rules that exist in the system? Um, and of course, how are, is a rules that govern? So you could actually call it a social contract if you like, especially in these public blockchains. Um, so also who, what type of agents are involved in the decision-making process of updating these rules. Then you have the network layer, that's the middle layer. And that is really where these rules, or the system essentially comes to life. So it's an implementation of the rules that, So it's uh, the peer-to-peer network where nodes connect to each other and directly communicate with each other. Um, But that also involves the fact of processing transactions. So how do we add unconfirmed transactions to that final ledger? And then also, very importantly, how do we verify um, whether the transactions have been valid and whether these blocks, or what we call records, um, are essentially complying with the protocol rules. And then finally, we have the data layer, which is really the top layer, And that is about the content of these records. So what do these records actually reference? Or you could also say what is in the blocks, essentially.
0: Are we still seeing lots of experimentation at the protocol layer, or um, is a lot more work now being done at the network and and, uh, data layers?
1: Um, So the way our framework uses these different layers is that really you have to look at one system uh, individually, and then you you cannot really separate these uh, from each other. Now, the thing is, you could actually also take an, an ecosystem view and then you abstract the protocol layer away to these, uh, what we call um, frameworks. So essentially, um, the, the, the key co- uh, code bases. So for example, the Bitcoin uh, core code base, or let's say the parity implementation of Ethereum. Um, so you could call that a protocol, or let's say Hyperledger Fabric, if you go to permissioned blockchains. So if, if you look at this perspective, and then the networks actually being the actual business networks. So Bitcoin, for example, uh, has different networks. So you have main nets but you also have testnet, which are based on the same protocol. Um, and then in terms of, yeah, the data layer is essentially what you build on top of these. So it could be applications like lightning apps that can connect um, to um, those networks. So if you look at it from that perspective, then I would say that right now, um, the protocol layer is, is mostly saturated. So there are lots of different competing implementations um, and there, we can actually see some kind of convergence of these. The main problem that we have so far, um, especially for enterprise blockchains, is at the network layer. There are simply not enough large scale business networks to actually build applications on top of them. Uh, right now, everybody is trying to build their own network um, in the context of POC or trial. Um, but the problem is we just recreate silos and silos again. Now, if you look at crypto assets, um, you have protocols and then the networks, they are an integral part of it. Um, Simply because otherwise you couldn't create that asset on top. So on the application, it's so for public blockchains. Essentially, it's really you you cannot separate the three. They they need to be merged because that asset at the data layer uh, plays a very important or even crucial role in um, making the entire network and system function. If you remove the assets, the system ceases to function.
0: For which kinds of uh, application? Do the benefits of blockchain outweigh the, the costs of decentralization?
1: That is a very good question. It's not very uh, well easy answer to it, frankly. Um, so so far we have Bitcoin um, and some other privacy focused cryptocurrencies. Where really so far this is the only way where we can create that censorship resistant money, uh, and not to forget that value underlying value transfer system. Um, something I personally find pretty interesting as well is prediction markets. Um, so especially you have a censorship resistant prediction markets where you can have any type of bets or prediction, um, that cannot be closed or shut down. Um, so Augur would be a good example of that. Now, do you need a blockchain for that? Um, that is a good question again. (laughs) And I guess few people, or some people would disagree that you actually need to build down the blockchain. Um, but yeah, I think the jury is still out on that one.
0: Okay, let's turn to enterprise blockchains. There's been a, an explosion of interest in, in this area. Looking forward five or ten years, how, how many of these enterprise blockchain initiatives are likely to result in something concrete rather than just ending up at the theoretical stage?
1: Well, that goes directly back to um, the standardization problem of the terminology. So first you need to define what you actually mean by an enterprise blockchain. Um I would say there are four different ways of of what people essentially mean today when they they use that term. So the first one is really the very narrow definition of blockchain just being that chain of blocks, a particular data structure. Now, that is not what most people mean. What most people refer to is that, or what I would call a a blockchain, is really a a multi-party consensus system. So you don't have one central authority, but uh, instead you have a bunch of different actors that are not um directly connected, well, um, not trusting each other directly to essentially reach agreements on a set of data. Now, today, most of these enterprise blockchain initiatives are not about multi-party consensus systems because they only have two or three nodes running on a hosted cloud, for example, with no distributed consensus whatsoever. But what these initiatives are all about is mostly common data standards, creating shared infrastructure. Um, so I would say if you can replace um, in a press release, for example, the term blockchain by a common data standard, and it makes sense, that's probably what they mean. And then the fourth, of course, is just like some some uh, buzzword, some marketing word to increase budgets. And That's unfortunately what it means also a lot. So to get back to your question with long parentheses, um, private blockchains will probably have a, a huge impact in many different industries if you really mean common data standards. So, if blockchain, the term acts as a catalyst to um, promote shared infrastructure and common data standards across different uh, um, industries. So having that cross-entity, these cross-entity business processes being automated. If if, if that's what you mean by blockchain, then it will have a tremendous impact. Um, But blockchain itself, what I would call a blockchain, will probably never be used in these solutions. Um, Now, if you mean blockchain really in the sense of that multi-party consensus system, um, I frankly don't think that a lot of them will be deployed, but I'm very happy to be proven wrong. Uh, But so far, at least, most experiments really deal with closed networks with just one or two validators. um, And that is very far away from a multi-party consensus system.
0: How have um, people's views on whether enterprise blockchain initiatives should be Open source, closed source, um, proprietary, or non-proprietary—have those views changed over the time you've been looking at this uh, topic?
1: Um, there's really a broad spectrum, so it's—I can't really say whether it has changed a lot. It's just there's lots of different perspectives and views on that, and and those companies that have been active in in this space, they generally always had um, and stick with their primary view. So. Um, because public blockchains and cryptocurrencies always based on open source. That's like the main ethos behind it. Uh, it is also the first implementations of enterprise blockchains are also open source primarily because they just copy pasted Bitcoin's code and then, um, changed it. Now we also have some, um, initiatives that or rather companies that essentially opt for a proprietary platform, uh, where everything is managed for their big clients. And that is just another business model. But I think really, if you look at um, at the share of, well, uh, open source versus proprietary platforms, I think that open source is definitely um, far ahead. They have all these huge initiatives or ecosystems like Hyperledger, like the Ethereum, Enterprise Ethereum Alliance, and they are all open source because it's all about creating these open common standards. It's just a business decision, essentially.
0: Even if some of these uh, networks don't end up as you know, fully decentralized um, Bitcoin-type systems, is it fair to say that the the, the, the volume of interest in this topic is, is is providing a push towards shared data standards, a, a more open approach to this type of information?
1: Oh yes, definitely. I think it just absolutely nailed it. That is, in my opinion, really the main. Um, well, the main net bene- benefits uh, of these enterprise blockchains so to really act as an, a catalyst or as a driving force to drive or- organizational change, both within companies but also between companies. So the exchange of data. So a lot, as you mentioned, a lot of these banks or financial institutions, but also other big companies, um, they still use a, a tax tag which dates back to the seventies or eighties, and um, so these are in- incredibly complex systems. Um, that are really layered on top of each other. And so you don't want to break them. So you rather add another layer on top somehow than really just shake it up from the foundation. And now you've got that magic buzzword blockchain that everybody just like, um, well, thinks it's an, a revolution, some magic bullets. And that actually allows you as, let's say, an IT uh, person in some banks department to actually get a budget and, and people and a team uh, from your supervisor. So that is a, a tremendous opportunity to rethink actually the entire IT infrastructure of your, your company. So yeah, I think really that is the main uh, benefit that these enterprise blockchains has have brought so far.
0: Let's talk a bit about your um, Center for Alternative Finance at uh, Cambridge University. I, I noticed from your website that it's you describe yourselves as an international and interdisciplinary academic research institute. Uh, what what uh, Academic disciplines are helpful in understanding this new area of finance.
1: Cryptocurrencies and blockchains are inherently multidisciplinary, so they draw on, on, on concepts from so many different disciplines. Um, so, networking to cryptography, to economics, to game theory, to even politics and, and sociology. So, I would say, really, in order to understand these systems, you should have a, a basic understanding, really, of, of all of these disciplines. Because otherwise, you, you really um, tend to kind of like get carried away with um, if you just use one particular subject, um, domain expertise. And I really think actually to understand these systems, you, you have to be a generalist, frankly, which is, of course, not easy because all these topics are so different. But that is also what kind of makes this topic so interesting. So the problem in, in, in research, uh, well, it's getting better actually now, because we were seeing more and more interdisciplinary research on this. But um, a few years ago, it was really like people from the computer science domain, they were looking at this and they didn't understand uh, the economics of these systems. Yeah. Then economists were looking at it and they didn't understand the tech adults. So they were kind of like talking past each other with their narrow view on these systems without realizing that you actually have to combine these two domains um, in order to have uh, a more realistic and objective perspective on what's going on. Apart from your benchmarking studies,
0: what are your main current areas of research focus?
1: So right now, we are yeah conducting these benchmarking studies again. So we hope the crypto asset one to be published in mid-November, whereas the enterprise blockchain one would probably be in early 2019. Um, but we're also working on um, a regulatory landscape study. So essentially, having a look, comparing different Jurisdictions all over the world to see, um, well, to analyze their regulatory response to crypto assets and and try if you can identify some patterns in in how they react to these.
0: And personally, what do you find most exciting and also most frustrating about this area?
1: Well, really, the multidisciplinarity is what fascinates me most. So before that, I was mainly interested in geopolitics, financial systems, monetary systems, and economics. I had no clue whatsoever um, about technology. I didn't know how my computer were, what the internet really was. I just knew how to use it and that's it. And in order to understand Bitcoin, when I stumbled up upon that, um, I really had to, to learn um, essentially how networks are being built, um, the basics of cryptography, and so many different things that are so fascinating that I probably would never have discovered um, before. And this is really what um, I think is most fascinating about all this, that it's, and of course, in crypto, as people like to call it, um, there's never a boring day. So there's always so much happening. Um, So yeah, you never get bored of it. Um, Now, in terms of what's frustrating, um, I would say really the sheer amount of marketing and hype um, that is out there. And then, of course, also the crazy money making and the, the kind of people that this attracts. Um, so this is really frustrating, um, because there's that, we, really that, um, how can, I say there's so much. Exa- exaggerated or excessive ad- advocacy as to what the systems can deliver. And then of course they also sell you a token with it. And yeah, there's, there's just also so many frauds and scams, especially in the public um, blockchain space with their assets, very easy to launch your own token. Um. And also what I found very frustrating is to have to clear up the same misconceptions over and over again. Um, so people get these misconceptions about what a blockchain can do. And now they've found the main flaw in Bitcoin and they're going to create a better Bitcoin, you know, all that stuff, without actually thinking about the trade-offs and the, the effects that this has on the system properties. And so that was, in the end, the main reason for really starting to write that report, um, because I was really tired of having to over and over again clear up the same misconceptions.
0: Right. So there's no, there's no magic solution to some of these problems. There's no, no uh, perfect cryptocurrency or perfect blockchain. We have to remind ourselves that there are always trade-offs involved.
1: Oh, definitely. If there's one thing that uh, listeners to this podcast should really take away from this is that always look at the trade-offs because there are always trade-offs involved. So if you can identify the specific trade-offs and the resulting properties of that, um, then you're on, on, on the right side, I think.
0: Great. Michelle. thank you very much for joining the New Money Review podcast.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: You've been listening to the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. You could sign up for our content updates at our website, newmoneyreview.com. Thank you for joining us and see you again soon for our next episode.